You know, we, we all have memory loss to some degree. We do. All of us have memory loss to some degree. Now, uh, some of us that ends up becoming a physiological problem, but all of us have it to the degree. For instance, um, I mean, I'm, I'm well already in the age that I can start to appreciate the old men front porch kind of phrase of the older I get, the better I was. I mean, we have memory loss. We, it seems like we remember all the wrong things and forget all the right things. Meaning you can actually remember the right events, but depending, for instance, if you were, if you played sports in high school, you know, boy, guys will recollect. And it's amazing how we've never heard of each other before. That certainly through some news agencies, they would have heard of all of our feats on the football field or basketball court because it just seems like 20, 30 years into it, we were just really that good. The truth is many of us just flat out weren't. You just weren't. But, you know, on the, on the flip side and, and, and also on a much more serious side, we also tend to remember things that God has taken away. We seem to have a memory problem, a memory loss problem that what Christ said 2,000 years ago in it being finished and somewhere in time in your lifetime that that was appropriated for you personally, that what he removed in past sin has actually been removed and forgotten. Now, make no mistake, I know we often say that when he removes our sin as far as the east is from the west, that we almost associate that with God's forgetfulness. But it's not as if God has spiritual Alzheimer's or anything else. The the issue is, is that the forgetfulness, so to speak, the distance between the east and the west is the offense from our account. I mean, in one sense, I actually do believe that God does remember those things, but because they are all covered in the person of Christ, then they are forgotten for all the right reasons in, in the mind and heart of God, not necessarily even the details. See, this is also where when you're reminded of the gospel on a regular basis, that you can also remember rightly even past sin. And what I mean by that is that Satan certainly comes and accuses us of our sin. He accuses us of things that we've done wrong that maybe we think we're just so wrong that we have no position to claim now. For instance, in ministry. I mean, I've done things in the past that I wondered, did that disqualify me from ministry? Well, that's like this sorry accusatory trump card that Satan can use on the worst days that even though you can say, well, I know I'm forgiven, I know I'm going to heaven, but it's like this loss of memory fit many years ago, thoughts, you know, struggles, sin, thoughts, just different things that Satan says, oh, I know you're struggling now, but you actually shouldn't even be here. It's like this trump card. It's like, that's not playing fair, Satan, as if he's going to. But for all of us, what we have to remember is the grace of God. The problem is also, though, we do revisionist history even personally. And this is where the word of God gets twisted and turned. So if he, if he cannot accuse you of things that you still feel like you are accused of and therefore guilty of, actually, if he can't do that, then he's going to do the other thing, which is twist and turn the word of God to say something like, well, I know that you experienced his forgiveness, but actually that sin really wasn't that bad. Really, you didn't even really need God's forgiveness. So why don't you just keep enjoying your life now? And you forget maybe the seriousness of sin, but also the seriousness and the depth of his forgiveness of the once for always sacrifice of Christ, the it is finished, the doneness 
of what he's done, forgetting the cross itself, at least as far as all of its gravity. We forget. And we need to be reminded over and over and over again because we tend to have our memory pendulums swing from one extreme or the other. Riddled with guilt and shame or just completely, almost entirely dismissive of the weight of sin and its seriousness and then just kind of happy-go-lucky, just carry on. I've got other things I need to do. Jesus, help me be a good, ethical, moral little boy. We have a memory problem. You know, another problem that I think we have, and I'm going to hope, hopefully encourage you to see how these all mash together. We have a community problem. Now, I think we have a communal memory problem where too often in our local churches that the community of saints are not rightly remembering together the right things. You know, this is where you can default, for instance, to the good old days. You know, too often churches just remember that. Boy, I remember back when, don't we? And that's the, almost what seems like, whether it's large community or at least small group, uh, click type of groups, I remember when it was like, whatever. I grew up in a church where I'm sure there were those pockets. I'm sure there were people still today that remember that. I mean, some great leaders in the Southern Baptist Convention came out of my home church, and it was the great day. I had a pastor of 45 years It was just this iconic legend in the Southern Baptist Convention. I mean, there was a good old day tendency. And yet, you know, as things get unpacked, even at the peak of those days, even years later, sin comes out that was in the presence of what seemed like bustling success. It was going on right in the middle of it all. We have a memory problem, and it includes how we communally remind each other of the gospel. But beyond just the memory problem, we actually have a hands-on community problem. And that being, okay, what are we doing right now in connecting each other to each other's lives that will help ensure that we are remembering in the future the right things? I mean, I'll, I'll put it this way. Many of us in our own homes, you want to create community in your own households. Many of us want to make sure that we are leaving, for lack of a better phrase, kind of a legacy for our children. But that legacy, and you all know this, is so much more than whether or not they have enough when you die that you've made simple provision. I mean, simply providing food in their mouths as a father is not legacy. You want to leave something so much more than just provision. Basically, what do you want them to do? You want them to remember that your home was a place where there was nurturing admonishing, teaching, training. Basically, you want them to remember, hopefully, what you want to remember on your last day, which is Christ, the hope of glory. Now, there are certainly other ambitions that we have in our households. You know, good work ethic, study hard, work hard, good things come to those who whatever. You just want to build kind of these good work ethic moral things. But look, you got... Every once in a while, I'm not saying dismiss those things entirely, but every once in a while you've got to remind yourself to get down to what is it you really want them to know. Because nobody on their deathbed is going to be communicating to their children, oh, just remember, I said study hard. Not really. Not if that person is really about to enter into the kingdom of heaven. Or if in those final moments they're realizing to their own horror that they never really had peace with God. They are going to the most eternal matters. So here's my contention with all that. 
is basically whether it's the community of the home, the community of the church, but also then our own personal memory issues. I think they all come together in the understanding of where community and communion intersect. All the elements that we celebrate when it comes to the Lord's Supper, to communion, to the Lord's table, to the Eucharist, or whatever you may call it, whenever we gather around the Lord's table, I believe that all the elements for essential, biblical, faithful, even enjoyable community are present there. So everything that we remember when we celebrate communion is actually all of the best and all of the essentials of what we need to remember on a regular basis for the sake of vibrant local church community. So in the previous three weeks, we've looked at the essentials really that deal a little bit more with personal disciplines, Bible study, prayer, fasting. This week, we're looking at something more of like a corporate discipline, communion. As we look at this, we're going to look at some really simple things. We're going to talk about what communion is, and we're going to talk about how communion then displays community. So we have to deal with what communion is. I know we, we talk about it and address it every time we share in the Lord's table, which we try to do about once a month. But we also need to see, particularly this morning, I believe, how communion can help encourage us, exhort us, even convict us on what is lacking in church community. Because I tell you, the temptation is to go to more surfacey matters when it comes to community. You know what I mean? Think about it. You, you know, you can go through difficult seasons and you can pack the family. You can go on family vacation. You can do that. You can try to do that and say, we just need to recapture some things as a family, but you're still coming home. You're still coming home to chores. You're still coming home. And you will, if you do not circumvent whatever else has been going on with the Word of God being central in the home, if you do not do that, if you don't short-circuit that, at some point you're just going to settle back into what it was. There's not enough vacations or these periodic things. I'm not saying don't go on a vacation. I'm just saying that if, if we're not careful, our temptation is to just retool something, just do a quick different direction, and maybe that'll make it happen. The fact is, it's just... It's just not... I'm not going to say that. But it's, it's a lot more steady than that. So what is communion? We're going to go to Luke 22 to begin with. Go ahead and turn to Luke 22, verse 7 through 23. Luke 22, verse 7 through 23. Now, starting in verse 7, continuing on through verse 13, it has the celebration of the Passover with the disciples. Okay, so we are essentially entering into that upper room area. Now, just again, give you consistency, and we will refer to John's gospel John's gospel deals with the upper room discourse, so to speak, from chapter 13 through 17. So you've got all those chapters in John. But what's interesting is in John's gospel, and we addressed this when we went through John's gospel five years ago or so, that there's actually no mention of the Lord's Supper, but it certainly is occurring in the middle of all that John is describing as being the more extended upper room discourse. It's the most extensive account that we have in all the gospels in John's gospel. But we have this distinct connection of how the Lord's Supper begins with the disciples in Luke chapter 22. So 7 through 13 deals with this Passover that they celebrate. Then came the day of unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. So Jesus sent Peter and John saying, go and prepare the Passover for us that we may eat it. They said to him, where will you have us prepare it? He said to them, behold, 
When you've entered the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him into the house that he enters and tell the master of the house, the teacher says to you, where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished. Prepare it there. And they went and found it just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. So this is where that upper room experience begins, okay, which will then lead to the Christ then leaving. Basically, you'll have eventually Judas' betrayal, Christ going into the garden, and then Christ being arrested, and this is the course of events. Then in verse 14, And when the hour came, he reclined at table, and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, Take this, and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took the bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup, after he had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. But behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. For the Son of Man goes, it has been determined, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. They begin to question one another, which of them it could be who was going to do this. So what appears to happen is that they share the Passover meal, which the bread and the cup actually may be elements that are associated with the Passover meal, but is not distinctly by itself the Passover meal. So here's a couple of things going on. I hope none of this actually seems overly academic, because I want you to see how these elements actually for us then become this blessed reminder that will enhance and our obedience for church community and the gospel witness in our church. But it seems to be just at the tail end of the meal, basically. Now, some draw a direct connection to the Passover meal, saying basically that the Lord's Supper, he basically just copies everything that was done in the Passover meal, but does so in a symbolic way. Others will say that it's more of a complete replacement or displacement of that Passover meal. Basically, that everything that was done there is replaced by the person of Christ. What we certainly would say is that, that overall, we do see that the observance of the Lord's Supper does come right at the heels of the Passover celebration, at least, at the very least, as an act of the fulfillment of everything that the Passover meal represents. So let me give you just a quick summary of this. Robert Stein in the New American Commentary gives a really good summary of this on the Passover. He says, It was a carefully ordered ritual in which each element of the meal reminded the participants of their redemption from Egypt. And most of you know this. You remember that the last and final uh, affliction that was coming to Egypt was the, was the death angel. And then the command came through Moses, his prophet, and his deliverer, his Christ-type person, for all the children of Israel, if you will apply the blood of the lamb in such a manner, then the death angel will pass over your household, but it will visit all those who have not had the blood applied. So without one wasted drop of the spilling of the blood of any lamb, in faith they make the application on the doorposts. And so that symbol has been, has been incredibly important for the history of, of God's people to understand the forthcoming fulfillment of his Messiah. Christ fulfills all of that. So Christ is making this connection because he has yet to die, but he is about to fulfill everything they're celebrating in the Passover meal. We would corroborate that. We'd certainly affirm that biblically. At the end of the meal, someone, this is an, I think this is an important deal. The youngest son usually was designated to ask, why is this night different from other nights? 
The host of the meal, in this instance, Jesus, would recount the Exodus story. The story tells of God's remembering his covenant by at least declaring that this is a new covenant, fulfilling the old and, in a sense, replacing the old. How? The old one is a deliverance from slavery by God for the forgiveness of his people out of their bondage into his kingdom or his blessed city, eventually the promised land, Jerusalem. Of course, you know that was a very messy travel plan because of their sinfulness. But here then you have how Christ then becomes the Passover lamb and you do see this replacement. So we do see those images. We do see all those symbols and all the topology fulfilled in the person of Christ, especially the fact that Christ himself administers this. So you have really the ultimate and final and last priest administering this work in a priestly manner. You have the last and final lamb who will atone for the sins of his people actually then offering up this meal and then eventually just later on the very early next morning, wee hours of that next day himself as the full and final sacrifice. He lays this out more distinctly in John 13, 31 through 35 when he speaks of this is the new covenant that you would have love for one another. But again, the new covenant is tied to God first showing his love for us when Christ comes and dies for sinners like you and me. So there's no separation between loving one another and the gospel. This is where communion and community intersect. Basically, it is faux community. In fact, it is perhaps even in some circles damning community to love each other and say that we love each other on a church community basis, but on some basis other than the gospel itself. Meaning, it's possible to say, oh, you know what, just come on in. There's a reason that we have a membership process so that the best we can surmise is fallen men who don't rightly see, not in here like the Holy Spirit who sees perfectly, to try to assess, is this a valid gospel testimony in this person's life before we just allow them into membership and, and to present them to you in good conscience. Because too often what happens is this folk community, which is, you know what, just come, you're all welcome. You're all welcome to come and listen to the preaching. You're all welcome to come, but to become part of the member of the church. Look, I, I agree. It is harder to become a member of UBC than it is to actually enter in the kingdom of heaven. But my contention there is, until the Holy Spirit is your senior pastor and you have the Trinity as your pastoral staff, which we are led by, meaning the Trinity, until that happens, we're going to need a little more information than what they have. Because we don't see... The heart. So we need to see what the scriptures outline as being evidence. We're not looking for perfectionism or anything else. But my concern is, is that too often we just simply and so quickly just say, oh, come on in. You're a part of us. I mean, how else does the Southern Baptist Convention gain 16 million members and only on any weekly basis can account for about 6 million people in attendance? I know it's not just attendance, but look, even if a good measure of the other 10 million we can't account for, how many of the 10 million people are not actually believers? Because we just so quickly have either baptized them or just, in a sense, laid hands on them to come into our membership. It's folk community. If it's not based on the gospel, they then falsely assume that they are in good standing with God because they're in good standing with that church down the street. The gospel has to intersect with anything that looks like or resembles the community of heaven. And for us, that's the local church. So our love for one another has to be on the basis of the gospel. But you know, let's go to the other extreme. 
we are members, we are saved, but then there becomes infighting at times. What is the gospel about? We certainly see broken community in homes, but what we try to espouse on a regular basis, I know the elders do, the staff does, the pastors do in our council. Forgiveness and grace is at the heart of every, every single healthy marriage. Why? Because that is at the heart of the gospel. That extrapolates out to our local community of believers. We're not trying to demand perfection of one another. We should actually be seeking on how to outdo one another in love. You can't do that apart from seeing what is in the communion table. The new covenant is that you love one another, and that is on the basis of Christ showing his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. Now, we believe that the Lord's table is, when I say merely, I don't mean that it is casually or informally or in some kind of insignificant way, symbolic. We don't believe in what historically has been called consubstantiation. I know it's a huge word. May never remember it, but you need to understand. So your Lutheran friends and others, some Episcopal friends, Martin Luther actually taught this, that the body and the blood of the Lord is present in, with, and under the consubstantiation of the elements. I mean, that's better than transubstantiation, which is what the Catholics believe. That actually the bread and the wine turn into physically, when you ingest it, it actually physically turns into the blood and the body of Christ. I understand. I mean, that's, that's, it seems weird. It seems odd. It seems like something that would be a little less joyfully taken if you actually say that. But nonetheless, that is what they believe. We don't believe in either one. We believe that absolutely the typology of the Passover meal is represented, that the Lord's Supper is a remembrance and a symbolic act of remembering what the Lord has accomplished, that yes, indeed, the bread does represent his body. Yes, indeed, the cup does represent his blood. And that what he actually physically did in time 2,000 years ago was enough, and therefore there is nothing saving in taking of the Lord's table together. We're just remembering that what he did once and for always is good enough for all time for those of us who know him. And it's also good enough as far as gospel telling to all those who may be here today who do not know Christ. But what you see in the celebration of this element in what you see in what believers only should be participating in. And it may not and it is not for you if you're not a believer in Christ, because you would then be wrongfully doing a religious act, thinking somehow that this religious act will save you. It will not. You actually have to have participated in the body and blood of Christ in order to celebrate the remembrance of it. So I encourage you would be, as you observe this, then ask yourself, is this real for me? Now, is this real for me? So we do believe this. Let me, in fact, give you what our statement of faith says. The Lord's Supper is a symbolic act of obedience whereby members of the church, through partaking of bread and the fruit of the vine, memorialize the death of the Redeemer and anticipate his coming. So let me give you this in, in some parts that I hope will help you. And this is all available in your notes that you can get online. First of all, it says it's, it's symbolic. We believe that the taking of the Lord's Supper symbolizes the sufficient work of Christ on the cross on behalf of those who believe. So very much like the Passover lamb, when the blood was applied, those people were delivered from judgment from sin. 
The fact is they deserved it, but because of the application of blood, then God was satisfied with that sacrifice. But even still, that wasn't sufficient for all time because then eventually Christ, the final Passover lamb, comes and finishes it. It's an obedient act. He says, as often as you do this, the language of Christ himself, and certainly then extrapolated out into the apostolic ministry to the churches when Paul's giving instruction to the Corinthian church. It is a command. There's no command to frequency. It just says, as often as you do this. So you absolutely, we absolutely are commanded to share in the table. We are free to assess frequency, but my shaping of this would be, how often do we communal, from a, as, a, as a biblical community, how often do we need to remember the gospel together? Now, I know we do so on a weekly basis in many ways. But to see the picture of it in this way, we have chosen to do it on a monthly basis. There are other friends of mine that do this on a weekly basis. Many churches do it on a weekly basis. I think the fear of that is simply because the over-frequency of certain things, sometimes they can lose their meaning. But perhaps that is a direction that we go at some point. I don't know. And just know that my gut is it doesn't need to just be seasonally or during some kind of holiday time or even just quarterly. So for now, we're making a choice that we're free to choose, but we want to be faithful when we do it. It also then says that it's obedience whereby members of the church. Now, there is freedom within any of our churches to make a choice on how closed communion gets. There are many churches who practice that it's only for those who are baptized members of that local church. And I, I do see the merits of it. We don't practice that here, not in favor of us moving that direction. But for those who faithfully administer that, I get that because the accountability of the elders of that church is over for her membership, not for the members of every church on the planet. So I understand the, the being faithful of that. Where that certainly wrongfully applied would be in, for instance, historic uh, classic Church of Christ churches where they actually associate their local church membership with the, they're the only elect on the planet. That's a whole different story. That's when you actually do then begin to associate the ordinances with saving means, not just remembrance. But the point is, is that even though it varies from church to church, our practice is you need to be a member of the local church and you need to be a member of your local church in good standing, which for us would mean that you have associated with that local church in membership having been saved already and baptized as a believer in Christ. You have publicly associated yourself with Jesus. We believe that. And then it says, well, the members, they partake of bread and the vine. So there's elements involved, the bread and the, and the fruit of the vine. The consumable food reminds us of the, the sustaining and sweet nature of Christ's sacrifice. There's a savoring aspect. I mean, by taking actual physical food in this process, we're also then saying that he is the bread of life. He is the fountain of living water. He has turned the water into wine. He has made a better thing. He is the better thing. He is the more sustaining thing. But there's also sweetness. There's a flavoring to it. So as we receive that gift, then we're also remembering not just that he is the full and final, but he is also the better and the sweeter. John 6, 51 through 58 says, where Christ says, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats this bread, he will live forever. 
and the bread that I'll give for the life of the world is my flesh. And that's when he goes on and says, unless you eat my flesh. So you can at least understand that if some are going to change the interpretation and, and be transubstantiationists, which is probably the first time in 20 years of ministry I've ever used that word, actually, in the pulpit. But if we're going, I mean, at least you can see they have a verse to hang their hat on a little bit. But, of course, where this ends up going, we know that what he's talking about is participation in the sufferings of Christ. Bearing up the cross, meaning it's not an earning, but it's a sharing in what he has done, that he has finished it on our behalf and we receive him as that bread who is full and final. And then he also then mentions how his blood then is represented and he must be drank, so to speak. John L. Dagg, who was one of our early Baptist theologians back in the 19th century, he says he eats the bread and drinks the wine in token of receiving his spiritual sustenance from Christ crucified. The rite preaches the doctrine that Christ died for our sins and that we live by his death. So I really, when we share in it in just a little bit, I want you to think about sustenance, sufficiency, that Jesus was enough. When you share in the table you're declaring that Christ is enough. So to add anything to the table would be to actually say the opposite. Well, it's Jesus and I have to do the ordinance. That starts to then say, Christ, you weren't quite enough. Anytime you veer into Jesus plus something, you have said he's not enough. And we know that it's only through Christ that we are saved. And lastly, and ultimately, there's a purpose which is articulated in our statement of faith, which says we're going to commemorate this, remember this, but until he comes. There's anticipation of his coming. Horatius Bonner, who was a Scottish churchman, poet, hymn writer, we've sung some of his hymns. In one of his hymns called The Supper and the Advent, just the first stanza says, Till he come, we own his name, round his table gathering one in love and faith and hope, waiting for an absent king. Blessed table, where the Lord sets for us his choicest cheer. Angels have no feast like this. Angels wait, but sit not here. Just a reminder that we are of those that once he does come, we will have a story to tell even to the angels who long to look into these things. The wonderment of the salvation of our absent king who's come in time. That means that when we celebrate, it's an in-the-meantime celebration until he comes. That's an encouragement to the church. So as we remember his sufficiency, that also means that we remember that he is sufficient to also help us to wait, but to wait well as holy and distinct before him. That Christ, the bread, was unleavened, unblemished, perfect, pure in every regard, sufficient enough. And he will keep us until he comes, which is why it should be a remembrance of holiness. Not that only those who are perfect take of the Lord's table, but only those who are holy, meaning those who have only accepted Christ's replacement for them, his righteousness in you, but also for those who do not regard iniquity in their heart. That means that you don't want to keep sinning So even now as you're examining your heart, maybe you're reminded of some sin, deliberate sin last night, or maybe you're even reminded of some, what the Bible even calls unintentional sin. Our flesh just finds a way to even without us willfully choosing to sin, we just kind of have a way of doing it. And as he reminds us of these things, instead of just calling it a mistake, we own up to it. 
And instead of just considering ourselves victims, we say, Father, forgive. Because the element you're about to receive reminds you that there's an immediacy to his forgiveness. But you know what? The spirit of what Christ says, he says, when, when you come and bring your offering at the, at the altar... Now, that's not a communion statement, but it is a worship statement. He says, and you know that you have something wrong between you and a brother. Paul captures these one another's in the communion instruction in 1 Corinthians 11. So you you not only don't want to hold on to sin that's just personal and private, but you do not want to hold on to sin especially that's between you and a brother. If you refuse to make things right and to humble yourself to someone that you've offended or maybe you have not forgiven someone who has offended you, you are not to take the Lord's table until that is rectified. The beauty of it is it can be rectified immediately. Maybe they're in this room. I encourage you, before we take the elements, during the time of examination, go to somebody and make things right. Pray. I don't care if you send a text and at least get the ball rolling. I think personal contact is best and better. But even if you just have to get the ball rolling... That's fine. Just start. So I think you've already seen really how communion displays this community. And I'm going to close with these just few points. Communion displays community in the purpose, the context, and the manner of sharing in communion. The purpose of it, we've really already stated, but let me state more specifically, is to show unity in Christ. But the unity is based on the gospel. Our relationship is rooted in the gospel itself. There's no other grounds for our unity. Not the greater greater good of mankind. Not that we're American, Arkansan. Everything else pales in comparison. So really, it's only those then who conduct themselves in a manner worthy, which means not that you're earning salvation, but that it's those who, those who are truly saved desire to live in faithful oneness and unity with the local body of believers. See, that's where historically the church has used the Lord's table as also part of the means related to church discipline. Church discipline meaning that the purpose of church discipline is to restore a brother or a sister in Christ who appears to be living like a non-believer. Basically, they've been approached privately and then with a couple of people who have gone in the breach and said, brother, sister, you are living in a way that is starting to be known by the community and by our church body, and this is not a faithful way to live, you need to come back to the Lord and repent of this behavior. I mean, when that stuff... it's It's not a witch hunt. It's when this stuff starts to be known, you take that information as it comes, and you go and you get in the way. The purpose is for restoration. But in that process of restoring, if they refuse to be restored to the gospel through repentance, and to that local church. The Bible says you're to treat them like an unbeliever. And historically, they have barred them from sharing in the Lord's table. Why? Because the Lord's table is, first of all, for those who are believers, but then second of all, it's for those who are in happy fellowship with the body of believers. We also share in our unity in Christ in sustenance. We're proclaiming that the gospel alone sustains us. As much as Baptists, we love to eat together, we still celebrate. It's still not enough. Ultimately, the fellowship, even around food, even though it's complimentary at times or can be the context that we share, it's still by itself not enough. What it represents is. Who it represents is. But then our purpose, again, what we've already said, until he comes... 
We're going to faithfully remember the gospel in picture until he comes. Because first, it's obedience. But then it's also blessed worship. Because we will then remember his coming. We try to remember his coming more than monthly, but at least on a monthly basis, we should be reminding each other until he comes. Until he comes. You know what this is? I mean, this is the treasuring part. For me, communion is a reminder that we treasure Christ together. Because what do you do? Food, it's not enough. That's part of this world. And until he comes means he is coming. So whatever satisfies me the most is what I want to live for and the timing I want to live for it. So basically, if this world makes you happier than what you think Christ will be, you don't want him coming anytime soon. You want to get a promotion, more money, see the kids graduate, see them married, see grandkids, whatever. And then maybe after you've exhausted all that happiness, well, whatever's left in heaven, that'll be great. No. We should be long. We should be saying, come quickly, Lord Jesus. And it's a corporate way of us treasuring Christ together to remember the Lord's table together with frequency. You certainly see the community at action in Acts 2, 42-47, where it says they were regularly in each other's homes, breaking bread, sharing all things together, even their monetary things, their property, their goods. Breaking bread, most, most commentators do believe that that wasn't merely just a, a meal of fellowship. It also included things related to the Lord's table. I agree. I think that that phrase is not exclusively one or the other, but, to, but does show that there is great freedom in the fact that the body of Christ gathered on a regular basis wherever they could. And for them, it was mostly in homes. And this wasn't, don't extrapolate this to just be, hey, me and just my family. You need to be with the church body to some degree, okay, in celebrating the Lord's meal together. But I believe that they were together often in each other's homes on a regular basis and would share it with liberty. They would share the Lord's table in liberty. But it was with their local community of believers, It caused them to be in awe of God's grace. They noticed what God was doing. It gave them perspective for the world. They started to love the world less. Therefore, they could share their their privacy and their goods, all those things they could share freely. Is that not part of community, what we long for? Well, you're not going to get it until you remember what is celebrated at the Lord's table. UBC will not be known as a tight, burgeoning community of believers until we practice and remember rightly the things that we celebrate at the Lord's table. All those things remind us of what it's all about. It provides joy even when disciples are added that God, I believe, is happy to add to the number in a local church those who would be his followers in a place that remembers that he alone is sufficient. So you want to make this a happy place for other disciples to come. You need to be intensely happy yourself. Don't figure out a way to make the program on the surface look and seem really happy or really friendly or welcoming. Be, be joy-filled in the sufficiency of who Christ is. And there is an aroma and a flavor that others will want to savor as well. The context, local church, baptized believers in good standing. The only distinction I'd make here at this point before we celebrate would be to say it's a little bit of the difference between being committed to marriage and your wife. You say, well, for me it's the same. Well, you know, how many times do we see, you know, really conservative political pundits really espouse the institution of marriage, but their own homes stink? 
You know, on paper, there's a lot of stuff that Newt Gingrich would say that I would agree with. But you know what? His private life, I would not want to emulate it whatsoever. Some people love the institution more than the person that they're in that institution with. I mean, that's what I want my life to be. I want my life to be so that in the local church that people know clearly that my commitment is to Jan. See, my institution includes in it a wife, and my wife has a name, and her name is Jan. And so while many of us love the church, the church is not comprised of a building nor reminiscent history. It's comprised of the believers we have right now. And if you're constantly grasping for a straw man, someone who's not here, who used to be, or who might be, but not right now, you'll never know community. The Lord's table reminds us of that. And then the way that we share it, even with all of the errors in the Corinthian church, there's a reason that they abused the Lord's table. Now, don't get caught up in formality versus informality here. But grace brings freedom. Paul was never accused of being a law guy. He was constantly being accused of actually having too much freedom. Now, this is where there's beauty in it. So you can have a very simply structured church, but you also better have really well-qualified godly leaders and a great theological foundation. Because you're going to be welcoming in a right way, but you're also going to be correcting and honing in because doctrine, the scriptures, confine you to right practices. So for them, too much freedom. So they ended up having a party. People were even getting drunk. Paul says, don't do that. You're not showing deference for your brother. You're actually being selfish. Some people here haven't even eaten a meal and you're already just drinking it up. So there should be confines. There should be some, I'll say regulations, but there is a, there is framework that's informed by, yes, our doctrinal understanding of what biblical community looks like, but there still was the freedom that always at any moment had the chance of being abused. We should not be afraid of abuses and therefore make things so formal and strict that the freedom is lost. I mean, women found new freedom in the New Testament church. But Paul says, well, wait a minute. It's good freedom, but you're stepping outside of the bounds here. You're not to be elders, but you can serve in so many ways. The freedom sometimes... So I'm not promoting, let's abuse it. But I'm by all means saying it should represent, in our manner that we take it, a freedom and the grace with which it is afforded. So, without... Men, I'm going to ask if you would take your places around the table. Church, I'm going to ask you to begin to prepare your hearts for taking the Lord's table together. You need to pray. Even in a few moments, there will be opportunities to sing, sure, but you need to examine your heart. First of all, you need to examine, are you in the faith? Are you a member of of the community of saints, meaning are you a Christian? That's certainly the first examination point. Are you a Christian? So if you do not know Christ, you are not to share in the Lord's table today. You can observe it, and I would encourage you to do so. I would encourage you to watch and think about what I've said, what the Word of God mostly has said about these elements and what they represent. Secondly, if you're a Christian and that you pass that so-called test or examination, 
are you a faithful member of your local church? Like I said, you don't have to be a member of UBC. But you do need to be a member in good standing, meaning that you are a baptized believer in your local church. That you've publicly acknowledged Christ and that, while not perfect, you are seeking to live in a way that's faithful. That you want to harbor no sin or animosity between another brother or sister in Christ and certainly want to regard no private sin. That you're willing to just say, Lord, and maybe by God's grace, even the Lord's table is like this sober reminder to deal with some sin that he brings up. Look, I'm not going to go all prophetic on you, but 1 Corinthians 11 is very, very clear. He says that some of you in the body are sick and even have died because you've not judged yourself rightly. Now look, You're only saved by Christ, okay, by grace through faith alone in Christ. Your ultimate eternal punishment is only put on the head of Christ, and you don't have to bear any of that if you've trusted that he's died in your place and you deserve to be there, but he took it for you and that he's alive. But you know what? God still does discipline us as his children. So while it is free and full of grace, you have to be sober-minded as you examine your own heart when you take the elements. Warnings are there for a reason. True believers respond to the warnings and do something about it. Unbelievers either ignore it or just blow it off altogether. So examine your heart. See if you pass the test, so to speak. And then once you do, celebrate why all those tests are passed. By His grace. The body broken for you, the blood spilt for you once and for always. You're remembering that what He did once and for always is good once and for always. And you are free. You are free. So you can memorialize a reality that's good for you until he comes. Wow. So church, I'm going to ask you to stand. Go ahead and stand now. Begin to examine your hearts. Even though we're standing, some of you may feel the need even to sit back down and pray for a little bit longer or even to come to the altar if you want to. We're going to ask you to make your ways to the tables. We have some in the balcony and some here on the main floor. But just come. Come as individuals. Come as families. For those of you who have young kids like we do, we instruct our kids that until they've been baptized, which is a longer discussion, a little bit deeper examination, then we just instruct them again and again on what this represents, but we don't allow them to participate just yet. Examine and then celebrate.